Hello and welcome to the Asset Allocator podcast. I'm Dan Jones, the editor of Asset Allocator. And today we're talking about alternatives funds and how they fit into portfolios in 2021. We're going to be covering everything from hedge funds and absolute return to real assets and commodities and asking what kind of combinations make sense. Uh, On a slightly different note, later on, we're also going to touch on the big macroeconomic issue at the moment, supply chain struggles. But uh, for all that, I'm very pleased to say that Tom Beckett, CIO of Punter Southall Wealth, joins me today to chat about these issues. Tom, welcome. Thank you, my friend. Good to be here. So alternatives, the whole point of them is to provide a bit of diversification for portfolios. But let's look at how that plays out in practice nowadays. Uh, a few years back, multi-asset absolute return funds were all the rage. Retail professional investors alike seemed happy enough to put a lot of eggs in those baskets. But these days, it feels like allocations are a lot more disparate, spanning all kinds of different niches. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, I mean, alternatives is is one of those words, a bit like balanced in the investment management industry that no one really knows what it means, but everyone still tends to use it. And alternatives, I find a complicated subject because, you know, what are alternatives? I mean, you said an asset that can perhaps provide some diversification, which is proving necessary um, against um, what you might find in equity and indeed conventional bond markets. So if that's what an alternative is, it covers a broad range of different asset classes, which can all have very different meanings. So, I mean, I think alternatives do play a role in portfolios, but as with many other things in our industry, people tend to overcomplicate things. So if you look at our portfolios as an example, we tend to put into alternatives all those investments you cannot easily put into the other 10 asset classes that we have. So within our emerge, within our alternatives allocation, we've got some higher risk emerging market debt, as an example. We've also got an investment which is a multi-asset investment, but with a focus on inflation and income. We've also got a um, USIT daily dealing fund, which is probably the more esoteric end of the spectrum, where the manager has an extremely negative view on all other asset markets. Uh, and through his, his um, you know, absolute return fund, has got basically short positions in various different markets. So it gives you a pretty decent examples there, or, or gives you decent examples there of alternatives is a, a wide range of subjects. And, you know, do they have a purpose and a role to play in portfolios? I would argue that they do. I mean, one of the big problems that investors are currently facing, and this week's been a classic example of this, a bit like in Q4 2018, um, that, you know, there are periods in markets where correlations move very closely to each other and you see asset classes all performing poorly. This week, we've got stocks down heavily and indeed bonds down heavily. And we saw the same thing in the fourth quarter of, of 2018. So, Alternatives certainly have a role to play in portfolios, but I wouldn't overcomplicate the subject and just try and investigate and invest in each different investment on its own particular merits. That makes sense. So when we're in a situation like this, and you know, obviously people like to try and prepare for these, you know, scenarios. These, you know, it's only been a few days currently, but worst case scenarios if they play out in the longer term, where stocks and bonds, government bonds, go down in tandem. Are there things you sort of have up your sleeve where you think this is something that could provide diversification in that kind of scenario? You know, all kind of bets are off, kind of bearish type hedge fund strategy might be something to use in that scenario. Are there any other assets you think can play a role in this kind of environment? Yeah, and that would that that sort of investment can play a role. But I think you've identified the biggest risk out there for all investors, and it's one which people are not incorporating into their 
overall thinking about markets as much as they should be. And one of the reasons they're not doing that is because they don't want to admit that it might be true, because it's not a very good way to raise assets when you tell to your potential investors that the two major building blocks of their portfolios, fixed income and equities, can lose money at the same time particularly after, let's be honest about it, Dan, a really easy period for a long time looking back in history where both have just gone up together in tandem, almost ad infinitum. So I think that is the biggest risk out there. And key to that will be what happens with inflation, because we are seeing a shifting dynamic in the global economy, really for the first time in 40 or 50 years. You know, as we went from the 70s to the 80s, the 80s to the 90s, the 90s to the noughties, the noughties to the 10s, every single time in those 10-year periods, we saw a major economic shock. And out of that major economic shock, the global economy grew once again. But that was accompanied by lower rates of inflation. The recovery from COVID-19, and we'll talk about this later with regards to supply chains, is different in the sense that we are coming out of it with positive economic fundamentals accompanied for the first time really in 40 or 50 years by higher rates of inflation. And to be completely honest, that is the worst outcome that you can find for major asset classes. Bonds, obviously, because the real rates of return are already deeply negative and will get more negative as inflation potentially goes up or just stays elevated. And everyone says, well, equities are a great hedge against inflation. And I say, okay, then, well, maybe. You can make an argument certain equities could be, maybe the energy complex, maybe perhaps arguably banks where you might see interest rates rise, maybe some certain materials companies, perhaps some companies that can pass on the cost to consumers. But I think that might be a dwindling number in the future. But broadly, given the structure and the nature of equity markets, particularly the S&P 500 in the US, which is over 50 percent in tech and healthcare, a bit of inflation could really be quite negative, actually, for the headline equity indices. And I think in particular, looking forwards, it's a pretty miserable time to be a passive investor in something which has just got passive equities and passive bonds alongside. So to sum up my nonsense so far, you do need to think about ways that you could protect and find alternatives. But again, that's really quite difficult because unless you can find something which is genuinely market neutral or positioned structurally negative on other asset markets, it's very hard to find alternatives that can fit into retail clients and wealth management portfolios where you do have those sorts of characteristics. This makes me really concerned about the future outcomes for investment portfolios, Dan, in all honesty. And, 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 I, and I wonder why people haven't really ascribed more of a probability to such an outcome going forwards. You know, the last 10 years in particular, the 13 years from the great financial crisis, equities and bonds have just gone up together in lockstep, in tandem. My guess is we're about to see a change in the environment. That means you do need to start focusing on different differentiated areas of asset markets and try and find some alternatives to core assets. That's, that's really interesting. Um, one thing I was going to uh, touch on, which you, you kind of referenced there, was the availability of some of these strategies. Um, how have you found that in terms of, you know, as a, as a you know, fund selector or the fund selectors in your business, when when you look for these kind of things, is there a dearth of people providing these opportunities? Are there fewer people, perhaps paradoxically, offering them now than there once were? You mentioned as well, you know, it can be hard to market that message. That's, I'm sure, the case for fund providers as well. They might, you know, a time of rising asset prices, it can be quite hard to get people interested in these market neutral or, you know, even negatively positioned strategies. Do you, do you see many of them available that, that seem like credible options for you? Yeah. Is it is it hard to find them? No. Is it hard to find good ones? Yes. And I think that's the differentiator. And I think also, 
if you think about how certain market neutral long short equity absolute return funds which have been available to retail private clients for the last decade at least have performed or indeed some of the multi-asset um, uncorrelated strategies for want of a better phrase they've just been rubbish and that's been the problem that investors have had and they've lost faith in those sorts of investments which has led them to probably have higher weightings once again in equities and bonds because frankly those are the only other realistic alternatives although we can talk about commodities and gold things like that in, in, in a few minutes time that, that might be something which is of interest to your listeners but is it hard to find good ones yes i think that's the problem and also you know people say they invest with a three-year forward horizon, but you and I know that's nonsense. Nearly every decision made in our industry is made upon the last three years' performance numbers, you know. And, and because lots of these things haven't performed well looking backwards, um, that's a concern. I mean, if you put into um, context our portfolios recently, you know, the last six months between the end of March and uh, five months and the end of August, you know, we have one fund in our portfolio that performed really poorly. And it performed poorly because it was structurally negatively positioned on equities and bonds. But yet in uh, September, it's done its job and it's up over 8%. But people are not willing to invest in investments like that. And I get more grief over anything like that because it's lost money. But it was supposed to lose money when markets are going up. People have a very low tolerance for that in our industry, Dan, as you, as, as, as you know. So can you find investments like that? Yes. Are there good ones? There are a fewer number of good ones. There are some which are just suitable and can suit one's needs in that regards. But people tend to ignore those because they're coming towards the bottom of the performance ranking tables, which I still believe is one of the greatest investment mistakes made by our industry. So talking about alternatives and again, to play a role in your portfolios is definitely easier said than done. I think it makes perfect sense. Um, but hopefully there'll be some, some change on that front sometime soon. Hope springs eternal. Um, well, I, I, well, yes, but I think also it's when people have really given up on these investments that they then they finally start to come mm. to their own. I mean, that's typically what happens. I mean, you know, and, and I think we're likely to see that as we, as we go forward. Some of the things which have really disappointed could well be the things you want to own going forwards. And it'll probably come at a time when most people have kicked them out of their portfolios. What about real assets? When we talk, we touch on inflation, you know, uh, property has historically been quite popular in portfolios, obviously. In more recent times, the, the way people access property has changed a bit. Some people looking at you know securities now, which is not quite providing the same kind of diversification, even though you can see why people have shifted that way. Infrastructure, obviously, has been a, a big thing and pretty successful selection over the past few years. When it comes to inflation in particular and this kind of environment we're moving into, do you, do you see those um, strategies as having more of a role to play? Yeah, and, and inflation is the bedrock of everything we do at Panda South for Wealth. Inflation plus benchmarks are what we measure our clients against as opposed to some spurious equity or peer group analysis which i also find to be a very big investment mistake out there is you know as people often say you can't eat relative performance i think that's absolutely correct but what you can eat what you can use your money to pay for stuff to eat is if your portfolio exceeds the rate of inflation and and so we take this all very very seriously the problem is finding investments that can actually benefit from an inflationary environment and you mentioned a, a few there now property yes to a degree, depending on the way that you access it. I think that bricks and mortar property funds, I've said for, you know, 15 years, certainly for the last decade, I think are weapons of potential 
financial market destruction, mixing short-term cash flows with long-term liquid assets still strikes me as being a pretty ludicrous investment decision. So uh, I avoid those absolutely wholeheartedly. Property REITs, you know, that is an interesting way of accessing property investments, but you're exposed more to equity market dynamics and indeed movements in bond yields because these are treated as sort of income assets. So again, your linkage with property is not necessarily as strong as you might want it to be. And actually what you find is in an inflationary environment, if bond yields are going up, that's actually quite bad for property rates. So again, you have to question whether or not that is an appropriate inflation hedge. Infrastructure, I'm definitely interested in. But again, it goes down to the ways that you can access it. And that is more difficult for private retail clients and the retail wealth management industry. But there are options out there. You know that we invest in a um, infrastructure unit trust, which invests in, in infrastructure companies, everything from the picks and shovels all the way through to completed projects. And, you know, that has got a pretty good demonstration of putting up dividends and things in line with inflation. So I think that is an opportunity still there for um, investors ahead. And and we know that governments who are going to be under pressure to spend more, not less um, in the future, just because the way it is and inflation has now become politically palatable, in my opinion, then infrastructure should benefit from that increased government spending in the future. So I think those are options. I think if you want to broaden the focus on real assets out further, I still think there's nothing better out there to protect against inflation than commodities and gold. And on the commodities side, I actually like the commodities themselves at this point in time. And we have done um, going back a year and there's been an absolutely excellent performer for our portfolios this year. I think the commodity investments are up some 25 percent so far this year. So that is providing an inflation hedge, um, which is necessary at this time. And when one thinks about gold, gold bullion, I still would have some in one's personal portfolio. We can't hold those within our portfolio. Um, we hold tend to hold unit trusts. And on that basis, we hold gold mining shares, which strike me as being just about the best inflation hedge you can find out there. And also, uh, weirdly, given all the dynamics people are worried about in the global economy and inflation, are just about the cheapest investment you can find anywhere in the world. And that makes me very excited at this time. Yeah, you, you mentioned... Um... Those two facets was something I was going to come on to, um, gold and commodities in general, because as you say, they've done really well this year. It does sort of strike me from what uh, I see that a lot of wealth managers, fund selectors are still a bit reticent, maybe not so much on gold, but certainly on commodities and perhaps gold miners as well, just because of sort of the volatility in the past has kind of has scared them off a little bit, which, which you know, if, if um, those who have stuck with it or, or you know moved into that area, as you say, have done quite well. But there does seem to be a reticence on their part. I think, Dan, that reticence comes back to the point that I made, that people tend to look backwards, not forwards. Mm. And I would argue the dynamics have shifted enormously for commodities and resources markets, not least because I think that we are in a similar environment to that which you and I experienced at the early stages of our careers a couple of decades ago when we saw massive underinvestment in the supply of commodities around the world, which led to a massive pinch point when demand exceeded supply because of the Chinese effects of the first decade of this century. And I think the underinvestment we've seen in commodities in the last five or six years brought around by the bear market in 2014-2015 is leading to similar characteristics now. And I think people have missed that. And that, to me, is interesting as an investment perspective and also inflationary. 
Now, everyone says, well, fossil fuels are done with, et cetera, et cetera, ESG, okay, but there's a lot of commodities you still need to use in the environment going forwards where there is a massive supply and demand imbalance, copper being one, and I think that continues to be an exciting area of investment for us. Yeah, the, the ESG angle is definitely an interesting one as well, which you say definitely creates some opportunities, I think, for, for people who are interested in, in, in the asset class. Just a final point on, on this uh, you know, kind of very broad alternatives discussion as we do a sort of whistle-stop tour. Another thing we've been seeing on asset allocator recently is a lot of wealth managers look to cash to, to play the, obviously the ultimate insurance role, look to derivative strategies as well, you know, put options, providing you some protection, that kind of thing. In recent times, we've seen some people though say, well, you know, you're not getting much value from those derivatives now. They're looking a bit pricey in some ways. So cash is ultimately the best, you know, the easiest option. What's your kind of view on, on perhaps, you know, if you want to pit those two against one another, you know, the use of options versus the use of plain old cash? We tend not to use options in our portfolios purely on the basis that um, these are portfolios for private retail clients. And one of the... Uh, investment mottos that I think has stood our business in good stead is is not to do something that you cannot explain to your least investment experienced client. And I still question whether or not the use of option strategies are suitable for every single client. But let's just say that they are, for argument's sake today. You know, there is opportunities to be created from options markets. But the interesting dynamic is for markets which strike me up until recently as being just about as complacent as they ever have been in my two-decade-long investment career, which is saying something because there's been a lot of complacency, as you you know, Dan. Actually, ensuring equity markets allocations against falls in the options market is actually still prohibitively expensive. So I'm not sure there's a huge amount to go there. So we tend to do it through diversification timing. And, you know, I've got no no problem using cash. Um, But the thing is, at the moment, I can still find, despite the risks that we've talked about, lots of investment opportunities in a broad range of sectors, including alternatives as today's discussion, to invest in on behalf of our clients. And I think in a world where I've got much less certainty than I have had for a long time, that's really the biggest crumb of comfort that I can find. As you look around various different markets, whether it's areas like emerging market debt or actually some emerging market equities, some boring old UK equities, but also specialist credit markets and various things like that, which could be considered to be um, an alternative. Commodity markets, gold mining shares. I mean, there's still lots of things out there which excite me, which means that our cash allocations can remain quite low. Now, if I really believed that credibility in central bankers was going to get hit significantly from here, which I think is the biggest risk, you know, there's so much credibility built up in what the central bankers are doing that if they ever gets weakened, then watch out below for equity markets. But I don't think that's going to happen in the very short term. But if I believe there was going to be a proper material correction in equity markets, I'd have no problem having a much higher weight in cash. Right now, our cash allocations are, are, are moderately low, around 4% in portfolios. That could easily double from, from this point in time. But right now, I think that's more likely to be a concern for later in Q4, maybe even into next year. Let's uh, let's take a step back to finish. Uh, you talk about central banks. The other big sort of Q4 concern on people's horizons, or you know, Q3 concern right now, is um, supply chains. As we mentioned earlier, you've got obviously big supply chain issues in the US over here. Potentially, you know, you've got the the gas price um, issues making themselves felt in the in the retail world and in you know, mainstream politics. You've got potential talk of you know energy crises in in China and Brazil again, or stemming from you know supply issues to what extent is that something that can be 
guarded against or played in portfolios. I know we've talked about inflation protection. And to what extent is that something that, that just has to be worked through? You know, I, I imagine it's very hard to kind of tease out all the implications of all these different things we're seeing, all these shortages potentially coming to a head at once. Yeah, and uh, for anyone in the uh, high wheel of Kent, the same change reason Tunbridge Wells does have uh, diesel because my wife filled up the car this morning, which was a great deal of relief to make sure we can get the children to school. But stepping away from parochial issues and, and focusing on the big picture, look, supply chain issues are, are, ma- are massive. And we've heard, you know, in recent um, weeks from, you know, Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve talking about supply chain bottlenecks and expecting them to last longer than previously expected. You know, Molomess, the world's biggest shipping company, came out recently and also said that actually the disruption is going to go beyond their original forecast of Q1 22 and potentially for the whole of next year. Next made comments this morning, um, their CEO, who's got a very good handle on um, the state of the UK economy and global affairs, was talking about supply chain issues as well. So I think this is really something to focus on. It's quite obvious that the world's got a big problem and it's elements of cyclical and indeed structural problems. But we shouldn't discount quite how important that might be for um, global supply chains for quite a long time going forwards and also for the costs um, around that and significantly um, persistent inflation, which people haven't talked about. You know, I don't think sufficiently and markets continue to underprice. So so what, what's actually going on? I mean, I think it's a combination of lots of different factors. I mean, obviously, we saw things like the Suez Canal issues had on this year. We've also seen the fact that there's container shortages in Asia. We're also obviously seeing a lot of pent up demand coming through. We're seeing issues around COVID-19 illnesses and people um, being unable to work. We've also seen bad weather in Asia, which has closed a number of ports. But beyond that, there is also, you know, much bigger structural issues around the balkanization of supply chains and the lack of trust, which is now embedded in global relationships after the COVID-19 crisis. And in particular, as we head into a more geopolitically fragmented um, global society, which I think is going to lead to supply chain issues and ensuring that countries have access to the products that they need when they want them. And COVID-19 was a good lesson in this, particularly in things like PPE. And that is going to lead to supply chain issues being structurally in place for a long time going forwards. And I think this is going to lead to higher rates of inflation than people are currently expecting right now. So I think the supply chain issues are more persistent than people are actually currently thinking at this point in time. Yeah, this is this is definitely going to be an issue that's going to run and run. Do you think that that situation is one that could become a, a, a structural issue even longer? You know, we talked about, you know, pushing into Q2, Q1 2022. I think there's still a belief, as you've just said, that these will be things that will smooth out over the coming weeks and months simply because they're so unfamiliar to us. But is that kind of complacency a risk and then... Is there a risk that this could kind of be with us for a long time to come? Yeah, I mean, let, let, let's uh, let's just think about this in simple terms. Is it going to ease? Yes, because the world is gradually going to get back to normal. Well, let's hope so. I mean, uh, absent a new mutated variant of coronavirus, which we all hope is not going to happen, the world should continue to get back to normal. International supply chains will begin to normalise, having been discombobulated during the COVID crisis. And the UK is a pretty good leading example for this. You know, we've now gone from treating COVID-19 as being a pandemic to being something which is endemic. As the world becomes more like the UK, these things should undoubtedly start to ease. And and, and that is our expectation as we move forward. But two things to note from that. Firstly, prices are not going to go back down to levels they were beforehand. 
because that's just not going to be the case. So that inflation is going to become embedded. And, and secondly, the structural concerns that I referred to earlier will mean that the world is not as smooth as it was beforehand when it comes to international trade. And I think that people are relatively complacent about that. As I sit here today in you know the end of September 2021 and look around the world, I think it's becoming much less complicated than it was just even a few years ago. And I recognise that there are certain trends of globalisation that will persist, but I think there are elements of nationalisation which are also going to come in and making sure that each country looks after their own. That, to me, will continue to put concerns over global supply chains for quite a long time into the future. I think, yeah, there's no doubt this is something portfolio managers of all stripes are going to have to keep monitoring very closely. We, as our cater, are going to keep teasing out the implications as well in the weeks and months ahead. But that is all we have time for today. So thank you very much, Tom. That was a really fascinating discussion. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And do keep on reading the Asset Allocator newsletter every Monday to Thursday afternoon. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.